We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hello, and welcome to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 75. Our guest today has been in the equestrian industry for years and has interviewed some of the top equestrian athletes in our sport today. She is the editor for the book Riding for the Team from the U.S. Equestrian Team Foundation and is sponsored by leading equestrian book and video publisher Trafalgar Square Books. Oh, she has some great stories. So let's go ahead and get started. Let's hear it from our guest, Nancy Jaffer. I have seen and heard such wonderful things about the book. Would love to talk about it. I will let you get to it. But first, would love to hear how you got into the equestrian world and what that looked like for you. Not that fascinating. I think it's the way every little girl gets started. I loved horses right from the beginning. And I took riding lessons, I think, starting when I was eight years old. And then I went on and had my own horses. And I did some showing, a little bit of venting, a little bit of dressage. Uh, And once I even went in a Western show. So I've really been involved with horses most of my life. I was also a journalism major in college. I have a master's in communications. And so it was natural for me to want to write about horses. I had a great opportunity. I worked for several newspapers and I wrote sports. I wanted to be a a, uh, female sports reporter at a time where there were no female sports reporters. Yeah, it was very discouraging. I can remember the athletic director of my school looking me up and down and saying, you'll never make it. Gosh. And I wrote him a note after I covered, I became the first woman to cover a football team, a professional football team, professional <laughs> football game, rather. I think it was, must have been like 1969. It was the Jets versus the Dolphins at the Orange Bowl. And I interviewed Joe Namath and all of that. Wow. So, but at the time, although today women in sports are commonplace, they just mm-hmm. weren't back then. Right. And when I went to work for the Star Ledger in New Jersey, I suggested to them because they knew the state, I grew up there. And I said, there's such interest in equestrian sports. And they didn't really know what equestrian sports were, but they thought it sounded classy. And actually, our editor's son did some riding. So, you know, he had a a pretty good idea. And uh, we started it out as New Jersey Horse Shows, a column that I did every week. And then I just covered New Jersey shows. And then we moved on to do more and more and more. And I'm so grateful to this editor. His name was Mort Pye, who saw the potential in it. And I went all over the world and I covered every world equestrian games. And wow. I did nine Olympics. So uh, I owe it to him and his foresight. Amazing. The amount of things that you have seen is probably so cool and definitely not enough time in this podcast episode to go over, but would love to hear a little bit of the highlights for sure. But before we do, when you were working in mainstream sports, what was the pivoting point that brought you back into the equestrian world? Well, basically, I worked for a number of papers, and I remember for one paper, I did a column called Woman's Place, because it was what you had to do in those days, and it was Mm -hmm. interviewing female athletes. I interviewed Kathy Kuzner for that when she got her jockey's license, and the wives of football players and basketball players. That's, (laughs) you know, that was, people today don't understand. They think that, you know, it's always been where women get an equal share of the spotlight in terms Mm -hmm. of sports writing and, and announcing and all of that, but back then, that was what you had to do. So 
basically when I came to the Star Ledger, they they didn't really want a woman sports reporter. So that's why I, I veered to the equestrian and, and uh, Mr. Pye was nice enough to see the potential, as I said, and make sure that it became a, a major feature. I had a column for, I'm trying to think, maybe it was 44 years. And I did coverage also, as I said, of individual events. So we had a lot of coverage and we were the only major newspaper in the country that covered international equestrian sports on a regular basis. Wow. So at what point did you start working on this third installment, this third book, Riding for the Team? Because I didn't know that there have been multiple. And then once you told me the titles of them, I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah, there are three parts to this and three installments. I want to hear a little bit about how that came to be and what your involvement became for Riding for the Team. Okay, well, the U.S. Equestrian Team Book of Riding was the first book, and Bill Steinkraus, the late captain of the U.S. Equestrian Team, the individual gold medalist in show jumping, we all know who he was, Mm -hmm. he did this book to sort of memorialize the first quarter century of USET. And it was not only a history and just amazing the things that are in there from people, unfortunately, who are long gone, but we see what it was like when they started You know, it was just such a small sport and USET was formed to fund it because Mm -hmm. uh, we don't get money from the government the way the equestrian teams in England or Germany do. So somebody had to fund it. The army had ended its equestrian team involvement after World War II once the cavalry was disbanded. So the USET moved in and he wrote about that history. And then he also wrote about various people in the horse world at that time. So I think we're talking 1976 here was when it came out. But it was more in a lot of ways a a how-to. Like he wrote a chapter on thoughts on jumper courses, you know, in case you're interested in designing a jumper course like a gold medalist. And then Bert Denemothy, who was the fabulous coach of the U.S. equestrian team show jumping squad at that time, Mm -hmm. wrote about the principles of jumper training. So these were things that you could read and not only learn about the people, but also how they did it, you know, how they became a success. And maybe you could do it yourself. Well, not exactly. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's inspiring to read Michael Page, who is still with us and Mm -hmm. celebrated his 80th birthday at a a big party at the USCT last year. It, It was his story of progressing from somebody who just decided that he wouldn't go to college and he would travel around to England and wherever he had to go to learn how to be a three-day eventer with the best in the business. Because at this time, there was very little in the way of three-day eventing in the U.S. uh, itself. You know, the sport was just getting started here, just similar to dressage. So anyway, so that was the first book. And then Bill Steinkraus decided to do another book for the next 25 years, and that was Riding for America. I can't exactly remember why he decided to hand it over to me. I think it was getting to be a little bit much for him. Mm -hmm. So I wound up, quote unquote, editing it. I wrote most of the stories in it because you can imagine people like Ann Kersinski and, oh gosh, all all of them didn't really have a whole lot of time. Michael Matz, Frank Chappelle, they weren't going to sit around and write. (laughs) (laughs) And and we had Bert and Emothy again in there, who was a close friend of mine. And so these were more biographies. They're very little in the way of how-to, although you can pick up some how-to along the way. Mm -hmm. But that was 1990. And since that was quite a long time ago, I had been thinking (laughs) for years that we needed to do a sequel. But, you know, it's expensive to do and it's time-consuming and it takes a commitment. 
And Bonnie Jenkins, who is the executive director of the USCT, finally said yes after pondering. She said, yes, I think we should do another book. So that was probably about three years ago. We started going on it. We had some meetings about what it should be called and who mm-hmm. should be in it. And that was really tough yeah. because there were some people that I would have loved to put in it, but it couldn't be a 500 page right. book. Right. And yet you're covering the last 28 years. <laughs> yeah. That's a yeah. lot to cover. And the sport had changed so much. And there's yeah. so many new faces. As I said, you know, between the first two books, uh, Birthday Nemethy was in it again. Frank Chapeau was in it again. Mm-hmm. But this time we, we decided that anybody who had been in the first two books would not be in this one because we okay. wanted to showcase the people who had made a mark in the sport since 1990 right? And, and hadn't been around before then in a big way. And of course, things had really changed because for the first book, the USCT only handled the Olympic disciplines of dressage, eventing, and show jumping. Mm. And then in the second book, we added driving for that because Finn Casperson, who had been chairman of the USCT, was a driving enthusiast. So four and hand driving got in there. But now we had eight disciplines for this book. And that wow. was, I didn't realize when I started how daunting that was. And I'm very, very familiar with the three Olympic disciplines and driving. But the others, you know, vaulting, I had covered a little bit of vaulting, but I sure was no expert. And then we have paraequestrian and reining. And that really, you know, added to the mix there. Amazing. You were kind of alluding to how challenging those three years were of planning for this. How did you pick the athletes that you were selecting for this book? Well, they needed to be medal winners. For the Olympic disciplines, we wanted them to be Olympic medal winners. Mm-hmm. Some weren't. Robert Ridland had ridden in the Olympics, but he did not win a medal. On the other right. hand, he is the coach of the U.S. show jumping team, and he's been yeah. incredibly successful in that regard. Right. You know, so that was why we included him. Got it. And then other people, maybe it'd be a name that you know leaped out at you, but they were people who made a huge contribution. I'm not sure that people remember some of these riders, even though it's been within the last 30 years, like Sue Blinks was a very successful dressage rider in both world championships and dressage. Hmm. And she talked about how the sport had changed from her heyday, say 20 years ago to Mm -hmm. now. And it's amazing to see the contrast between the two. And you think, well, 20 years, how much could have changed? A lot changed. A lot. Yeah, exactly. Once you had a rough idea of who you wanted to include in the book in writing for the team, did you sit down with each athlete? Did you try to make things work over the phone or email? What did that look like for gathering these stories? I knew most of them because I'd written about them. Raining, I was not as familiar with. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did cover raining at world championships, but that was it. And also I had left out endurance and I did cover some endurance. So when I said that we had eight disciplines instead of three or four, I I should have mentioned endurance, which was very inspiring with our champions, such as Becky Hart, Valerie Canavy, and the late Maggie Price. Mm -hmm. So I tried to sit down with people when I could. And a lot of them were people that I saw at shows since I had some time you know, I could always wait for the next show and be sure to get them in person. Right. But that didn't always work. So um, number of them I did by phone. There were some who wanted to do it by email, somebody, uh, a power rider, for instance, who had trouble speaking. Mm-hmm. And so I would ask her questions by email and she would write me back. Mm-hmm. There was one person who wanted to write her own story, which is always a challenge for 
people who are so busy, but she's not writing mm-hmm. anymore. And that was individual bronze medal of Venner from 1996, Carrie Milliken. Okay. And so we worked on it together. She wrote it and she sent it to me and then I made some changes and yeah. she sent it back to me and then I sent it back <laughs> to her and she sent it back to me and, you know, yep. <laughs> probably would have been easier if we just uh, sent it straightforward, but she wanted to do it and I yeah. admired her for that. Yeah. And then also in, involving Kareth Lemon, uh, did a little bit of writing of hers and Megan Benjamin Gumarin. Mm-hmm. And then actually Devin Maitoso, I had spoke with him for hours on the phone, another Walter, <laughs> and I sent everybody their stories so that they could make corrections or add something we might have missed. And Devin kind of wanted to rewrite the whole thing. And it was very <laughs> long. You know, I had a, yeah. a limit of words and it was very, very long because he's had a very, very exciting life. But wow. it's, that's always hard is to cut it and to have people understand. Well, we can't Mem- uh, mentioned what happened in 1992 on the Thursday that you had this great revelation <laughs> about blah, blah, blah. So, right, but right. everybody was great. Everybody was very cooperative and it was great. I, I touched base with people I hadn't seen for years. For instance, Michelle Gibson, uh-huh. uh, bronze uh, team bronze medal dressage rider from the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta. And she was the star of her day in our country. I hadn't wow. seen her for many years. So it was great to catch up with her and find out that she had gotten married and learn what she was doing. So that mm-hmm. was terrific. And then Debbie McDonald, uh, I had written a book with her. I don't know if you've seen it, Riding Through, oh, yeah. about her life. And that was, it, it came out, I believe, in 2006. Cool. Uh, and I did see Debbie frequently. We became friends. And she's, of course, now the coach of the U.S. dressage team. Mm-hmm. Technical advisor, but Robert Ridlin always likes to be coached, so I called Bibby coach too. <laughs> uh, and it was great to actually, you know, get back with her. And we had such a, a groove together working on her book that this was a very easy one to do, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much to our sponsor today, Trafalgar Square Books. Trafalgar Square is a small, privately owned company located on a farm in central Vermont. They publish books by the best riders, trainers, grooms, vets, and writers in the horse world, including Isabel Wirth, Charlotte Jujardin, Buck Brenneman, Anne Krasinski, and many more. Visit their online store at horseandriderbooks.com and discover over 400 print and ebooks, audiobooks, DVDs, and streaming video published for the good of the horse. As an equestrian podcast listener, Trafalgar Square Books invites you to enjoy 20% off when you order at horseandriderbooks.com. It's as simple as using coupon code ECPOD, that's E-Q-P-O-D, at checkout at horseandriderbooks.com. Thank you so much, Trafalgar Square. All right, let's get back to the episode. Sounds like each individual had such a cool piece of their life to incorporate into writing for the team. Are there any, if you, I mean, this has to be terrible for you to pick because they're all probably so amazing, but are there any that really stick out in your head as far as being extremely inspirational or just their story has resonated with you? Well, truthfully, the paradressage people have to be inspirational. Mm-hmm. Look what they have to overcome to right. be a success. And I did not realize, you know, I've covered a little bit of paradressage, say, in the last 10, 15 years. But there was para way back. I didn't realize that. Mm-hmm. And so it was very interesting to speak with Vicki Garner-Swigert uh-huh. and Lynn Seidemann. Vicki Garner-Swigert's chapter is called Para Pioneer. Mm-hmm. And she was a jumper rider who had had an accident that, left her confined to a wheelchair. And 
that her walk back, in effect, I, I'm using that word, you know, in, in quotes, to uh, a life where she could be a star with horses was really interesting. We didn't have the help back then for mm. these people that there is now. Everything is so sophisticated today. Right. And there's a lot of great funding. The U.S. Equestrian Team Foundation has worked so hard to get funding for our sports and it's, again, as I said, we don't get any government support and U.S. Equestrian Federation also works on that. But it's the foundation that really makes it possible for these people to get the training they need, to go to the preliminary shows they need before they go to the Olympics or the World Championships. So people like Vicky and Lynn Seidemann were doing it basically bare bones and they became successes. And I found them both very inspirational, very humble. I don't even think that they realized how special what they did looks in, in retrospect, you know, mm-hmm. with, the, with the perspective of years and thinking what they didn't have that we have now. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. I I think getting little snippets of some of these top rider stories, and I mean, obviously in this book, and, and obviously something that I experience with interviewing some of these people on the podcast, you just find that these these athletes have a full story and that they are super humble and they have very unique aspects to their story that just make it so inspirational and and such a great piece of information to share with the rest of the community. It makes all the others in the community extremely appreciative of what they've done for the sport. Every story is different. Andrea Fapani, who I've never met in person, he is a rainer, who was born in Italy and he started writing English and he's he said something that I thought really should resonate. He's gorgeous writer. And he said writing English at the beginning of his career helped him achieve the balance that has paid off success for him now that he rides Western and he's reigning. Wow. He's just a, a, a great guy. Yeah. And I, I should have mentioned that two people I couldn't interview were Maggie Price from Endurance and Amy Tryon from Eventing because they had died. Mm. And Maggie, I knew a little bit. She was a real feisty lady and she was always <laughs> fighting for funding for horse sports. She was terrific. And Amy, actually, I knew quite well because I had covered so many world championships and other events where she competed. And she was just, she was the word competitor defined. Didn't matter. In those days, you could fall off an event and get back on and finish it, which is what she did in the 2002 world championships where mm-hmm. we won team gold and she was hurting and, you know, she could barely walk, but she kept going. So I had a lot of interviews with her from the past. And then I spoke with her husband and that was just some conversation. We're both practically crying by the end. Oh of it. yeah. You know, remembering wow. her and how special she was, how she left us early and all the things that she achieved. And there was mm. somebody who had really, you know, no money. She was an EMT firefighter in Washington state. No way. And she, yeah, she was. And she would have to work weeks and weeks of weeks of long shifts to get enough time off to go compete in the qualifiers and the championships and Olympics. She was just an incredible. Incredible. Wow. All of these stories in, in this book are definitely a tribute to each rider, but especially for Amy and Maggie. I mean, what was that like to summarize their life story when you couldn't physically speak with them when this book was coming out? 
Well, as I said, Amy, uh, I had spent a lot of time interviewing her over the years. So I felt very, very comfortable with that. And, you know, I spoke to her husband and I spoke with some other people like Jim Wolf, who had been a director of sport for the U.S. Equestrian Federation. And his focus was eventing prior to that. So he was great, great insights. And then I spoke to people the same way about Maggie, people who were really devoted to her. And as I say, I had an essence of her, even though I, mm-hmm. I couldn't interview her because I had seen her at meetings and I had seen her ride and I knew what kind of a person she was. So that helped me cast the story. That was sort of the, the backbone of what I wrote because I could fill in quotes from other people, but I knew what she was and what made her special to them. Right. Did you have a rider or two that you talked with and interviewed that you maybe knew before, maybe didn't, but their story really surprised you? You know, again, I think it's the sports that I didn't really cover much, which is raining. And that's why Andrea Fapani, the fellow who was born in Italy and wrote English and read Western, he really stuck with me and we we clicked over the phone. I would love to meet him someday, but he lives in Arizona. I'm not sure that Hmm. that that's going to, to happen. Also, Becky Hart, who was our first world champion and just somebody that really made it for the sport in the U.S., it was interesting because she hasn't been in the mainstream for a while. So I felt a, a real connection with her hearing what she did. Again, you know, even in 1990, 92, uh, 94, 96, the sport all the sport was so different than today. Mm-hmm. It wasn't as well-funded. There weren't as many events. Now we had, up until COVID, we had right. events, several events every week in every sport that were major and important. So it was interesting to get perspective like that from these people. And I found it kind of inspirational to know that they made it when it wasn't really easy to make it. Not that mm-hmm. it's easy today. I, easy is probably the wrong word, but it was more difficult back then. Right. And also Derek DeGrassi, I should mention him, Hmm. poor guy. He was the one who's been working on the cross-country course for the Olympics in Tokyo. And he's very intellectual. He's a terrific guy. He'd also ridden on the U.S. team as an inventor. And he he does the Land Rover Kentucky uh, Mm three-day event course designing Mm -hmm. every year. And he really took time. You know, we did an interview. And then I sent him his story. And most people would call me in a day and say, oh, it's great. Or can you change this? Or can you add that? And he said, I think I sent it to him on a Friday. And he said, well, I can get back to you by next Thursday. And I thought, gosh, he must really be busy. (laughs) Sit down and read a 2000 word story. Right. Uh, But what he did was he went over it line by line and he he added some thoughts. Sometimes when you interview people, and I'm sure that's going to be the case when I hang up, you all go, oh, you know, I should have said Mm -hmm. this. Wait, yeah. But he he, he was painstaking and, and put in other things that he thought were important and it made it, I think, a very, interesting piece on mm-hmm. putting it all together about how he evolved uh, from riding into course designing, although he still rides and, you know, what he thinks is important in the sport of eventing where unfortunately there have been so many accidents on cross country. And one of the key things of any cross country designer is to try and keep the sport as safe as possible. Mm-hmm. Definitely. What do you hope that readers will get out of reading this book, reading any of the installments, but especially writing for the team? I hope they'll realize that riders are people, riders and drivers, I should say, are people just like they are. And they've had their struggles because I think somebody, you know, in a backyard barn who's cleaning the stall every day and is Mm -hmm. struggling to pay for the shoeing thinks that uh, they're all alone and they could never make it to the top. And many of these people did things that 
might be considered extra effort. I mean, extra mm-hmm. effort is really an understatement that they had to yeah. go many miles. Lauren Graves, everybody knows her because of Verdades. Well, yeah. he came to her as a weanling who was incredibly difficult. Right. And she had so many falls. She tried to sell him. No one would buy him. Mm-hmm. And she really had a struggle. She worked as a hairdresser and cosmetologist cosmetologist yeah. uh, and wanted to give up so many times, but she didn't. And I find, I think that's, you know, the story of perseverance, which is, you know, it's so important with horses, you know, it, it, it doesn't come right the first time or maybe even the fifth time or the sixth right. time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people also can see that you don't have, she's a great example. You don't have to be wealthy to make it to the top, mm-hmm. which I, I think is really important. People don't understand that. And Boyd Martin, the inventor, is hysterical. Yeah. He's the funniest guy. Yeah. And he talks about his early years in Australia. You really have to read the book because of all the crazy things he did and the yeah. crazy things that happened to him. He's a character. That's the best way to put it. Uh-huh. And and it's fun to read his background and how he came from really an unorthodox background, I'd say, mm-hmm. because in Australia it was sort of seat of the pants. And then he came to the U.S. and started seeing how we did things. And he got the idea. And he's unfortunately had so many accidents. You know, he's yeah. always posting his x-rays online. But you can see that nothing ever discouraged him. And he knows that you'll get through it. He said that, too, with this COVID uh, virus, you know, mm-hmm. we'll all be through it and we'll be better for it for the time that we've spent training at home. And- go back out on the road. Exactly. Exactly. Switching gears a little bit for those listening. I know of a lot of people who want to be in the equestrian industry as a professional, don't really know where that will take them, but they are interested in things like writing and journalism. What would be some tips or some advice that you would have for people like that looking to get into the equestrian industry in that way? Don't do it. Why? <laughs> uh, media, media. You know, remember from Ghostbusters? What was it? Nineteen eighty-four. One of the yeah. lines was "Print is dead." Now it's <laughs> really dead. Oh it, no! It's terrible. Uh, <laughs> most media outlets, I would say, are furloughing people. They're laying them off. They're hmm. cutting their salaries. Mm-hmm. It's it's really tough today. And I would say that uh, you're better off getting a major in something else, or perhaps becoming a welder or a plumber, so you can earn a living, and then just you know <laughs> writing on your own and submitting mm-hmm. freelance things. But so sure. many public Applications are going on there. There's opportunity in public relations. And I would say the best thing to do might be to work on a weekly newspaper because they seem to be surviving in some areas of the country. So at least you get a little bit of of hands-on background and then go into public relations or athlete Mm -hmm. representation or something of that nature. But there are so few magazines and, and newspapers out there that are surviving in a place where you can make a living, it's it's just heartbreak. You know, I, I yeah. have friends who've been laid off and furloughed, and I would say at this point, you know, social media has changed everything. And that's the other thing. If you're an expert in social media, you can do really well with that in the mm-hmm. horse world because athletes right. want representation. Brands want representation. Right. Be good to have a little bit of the journalistic background for that totally. reason, as I say. You know, maybe work for a weekly paper or take a, a few writing courses. Mm-hmm. But then I think you, you can more of a, an impact there than you can just in straight journalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's good advice. What would you say is an area of the industry that you are particularly passionate about that you feel like the rest of the equestrian industry either doesn't know a lot about or doesn't talk enough about? I think the grassroots, you know, you always hear this phrase at the U.S. Equestrian Federation annual meeting. Oh, we have to do something for the grassroots. The Mm -hmm. grassroots are people like the 
person that I mentioned a, a minute or two ago who's cleaning their own stall and has right. to scrape together money for the shoeing. They can't even begin to aspire of being in the big shows. And they they may be able to go to local unrecognized events, but that also takes some budgeting. This is where our next group of riders comes from. You know, Definitely. You know, there is the person who buys the million dollar plus horse and is getting lessons from the best trainer, but they're not always the best riders and they're not always the ones who make it to the top. And, Mm -hmm. you know, again, Laura Graves, I'll cite her, came from really nothing, just from some backyard horses. Right. And her mom buying a a ditty for Dottie's off a a video when he was a weanling. Debbie McDonald, if if you know about her story, I mean, she was just a kid who had a pony and went on from there and she had a bad accident. She used to ride hunters and jumpers. Mm-hmm. And her after the accident, she had a baby and her husband said, you know, we can't take a chance anymore. Right. And he got her started in dressage. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, it, you can come from other than a big bank account to do well. But I do think that more attention needs to be paid to the lower levels and Mm -hmm. to things like, I know the Virginia Horse Shows Association is a very nice series of unrecognized shows. Mm -hmm. And I think that those should be touted in addition to the big shows. Not everybody has to ride at the Hampton Classic. Right. Not everybody can afford to ride at the Hampton Classic. And sometimes it's more rewarding to be with a group of friends from your area going to a show and having fun. Mm -hmm. You know, in the old, old days, that was what it was like. You'd see the same people every week or every other week and, you know, you'd be in these little classes and there was no money, but you had trophies. I mm-hmm. still have some on a shelf yeah. in my house. And I look at them, you know, as I walk by and, and I remember that we had a lot of fun. And I think sometimes today the big shows aren't as much fun mm-hmm. where they're really not about fun. They're about marketing a horse or getting right. business or marketing a trainer or marketing product. Mm-hmm. So I think we need to to do more at the lower levels of the sport to encourage people and make it possible for them to continue and maybe someday rise to the top, but they got to have a leg up first. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. I think that is a really great point and something that it would be extremely helpful to have more conversations about that because you hit the nail on the head exactly. Those kids are the future of the sport. And if uh, we want to continue seeing the sport do well and, and to even thrive, that that's something that needs to be put at the forefront. And it's got a reputation as an elite sport and that mm-hmm. turns some people off. Yep. Uh, and I know that's that's hindered coverage of it over the years. When I first started, equestrian sport coverage in most publications was limited to the social aspect. Okay, uh, and they didn't really even look on it as a sport. You know, wow, something for Miss Fuddy Duddy down the street uh-huh. in her big estate who raised lovely horses to go and have a nice time and yep. get some ribbons to go home and have a drink. <laughs> yep, yep. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Well, Nancy, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. You are genuinely a wealth of knowledge, so I really appreciate you taking the time, and I wish you all the best. Well, thanks so much. It was fun. It really was a a nice experience and sort of walked me down memory lane a little bit, which I love. Oh, love it. Well, I am so excited to read writing for the team. I cannot wait. I'm sure I will be laughing and crying and everything in between. (laughs) Well, I should actually tell people how to get it. If you go to uset.org, you will see right on the website how to order it. And it can also be ordered from Amazon. Perfect. Amazing. Well, thank you again so much. All right, that is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. 
Thank you so much, and I will talk to you next week.